happy Pentecost. I don't know if you knew, but today is Pentecost. Um, in light of that, I want to tell you a story. Perhaps in a way that might stir up our imagination and um, help us appreciate what today means. Um, so close your eyes. You don't have to close your eyes for this whole time, but just as we start, I'm going to have you close your eyes. Uh, and then whenever you feel like opening them again, you can. We're going back in time to the year 30 AD. It was a good year. We're in Jerusalem. Imagine whatever Jerusalem looks like in your mind, and that's, that's it. Picture it. It's right around this time of year, end of May, almost June, I believe in the Jewish calendar, it's the third month of Sivan. And you live in Egypt. You speak their language. Perhaps it's called Egyptian. I don't know what it was called in the year 30, but you speak that language. But you are a Yahweh-fearing Israelite through and through. You've traveled hundreds of miles to Jerusalem for some of the pilgrimage festivals, Pesach and Shavuot, or in English, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Weeks. And though your family lineage had been dispersed all over the place hundreds of years prior due to the Babylonian exile, you retained your Jewish heritage and your belief that Yahweh would bring you all back to your homeland and that Messiah would come and liberate you from those that oppressed you. And so each year that you could, you would make the trek, the pilgrimage back to where it all started in Jerusalem. You make this journey to identify with and remember your ancestors. So months back, you had celebrated Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or booths. You remembered when your ancestors had to camp in the wilderness as they made their way to the promised land. And so you spent a week out in tents living life as your ancestors did to remember the story. But now it's a new year. You've traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. You can open your eyes now if you want. Unless you're enjoying the eyes closed thing, then just have at it. Kevin closes his eyes every week. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's just absolutely packed in Jerusalem. Every hotel room, every Airbnb is booked. People are camping out, out like in the countryside outside of the city. You happen to have some extended, very distant family and friends in the city with room for you. They have this small like tunic clothing business in the heart of the city and you plan to work for them for a few months while you're in town for Passover and the Feast of Weeks. And you arrived in town just in time to celebrate the Passover meal with this family of yours. After Passover, you had heard about some stirring going on, a riot, some would-be Messiah of which there were many all the time, some would-be Messiah, this one from Nazareth with a Galilean accent, seemed to be causing a lot of commotion. There were some others too though, another criminal, another guy who was trying to stir something up with the Romans. And you knew the Romans would hang people on these crosses of wood outside the city, but you did not want to watch. You didn't want to be a part of it. It was too barbaric for you. You thought about, you remember Deuteronomy 21, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And so you stayed away from the commotion that Friday night as Passover Sabbath was beginning. You Shabbat on Saturday, and then the world moves on and it picks back up again. 
You go about your life, you stay in the city for another seven weeks between the Passover and the next, the festival of weeks, or Shavuot. You're working with your family, enjoying the buzz and the vibrancy of the holy city. You had once heard these murmurings about uh, people seeing one of these crucified would-be messiahs, maybe that he was alive again, but how could that be? People don't come back from the dead. Certainly his disciples are just making up a story or hallucinating, trying to further their cause in some way. And then the 50th day arrives after that Passover Sabbath when you first got to the city. It's approaching 9 a.m. You're getting ready to man this clothing booth with your cousin. You're passing by the temple square and all the festivities are happening. There's offerings and sacrifices and commotion. There's a buzz in the air. And then you hear something. You hear someone shouting. You and your cousin stop, and you make your way towards the noise, and you hear even more people shouting. But it sounds positive. It sounds like praise in some way, but you can't understand what they're saying until you can, and then you hear it. You hear your own language, your native tongue, something you haven't been hearing (laughs) this whole time you've been in Jerusalem. Someone is shouting about the wonders of God, a risen Messiah called Jesus, and you can hear it and understand it in your own language. So you elbow your cousin, you're like, they're praising God in my language, what's happening? But he's like, nope, they're praising God in my language. And then this third person's like, how is this happening? Aren't all these people from Galilee, how, how are they doing this? What is going on? And then there's some people behind you in the back scoffing and they're like, what is this nonsense that we're hearing? It sounded like gibberish. They suppose that these Galilean men are drunk by 9 a.m. parading around the temple courts and causing a scene. But then one of the dudes who was praising God in a language not his own steps up a few steps where they were and he raises his voice and begins to address the crowd that had gathered. Fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He continues his speech. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would see, that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We're gonna pause our story and pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to enter into um, the story of Pentecost, that we would see what happened, what you've told us, see ourselves in the grand story of you and your plan for our lives and your plan for the church. Um, pray that we would see it afresh today. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this Pentecost Sunday, we're back to 2023, just so you know, is gonna serve as a, a little springboard launch pad for us to talk about the Holy Spirit for a few weeks. Um, the Greek word Pentecost literally means 50. It refers originally to an Israelite holiday, the festival, the Feast of Weeks that we mentioned. The Hebrew word for week is the number seven. And so the Feast of Weeks, aka the Feast of Sevens, is named so because it takes place seven weeks or seven sevens from the Passover Sabbath. So there's the Passover, the first kind of holiday of the new year, and then there's the Sabbath after it, and then begins the count of seven sevens to the Feast of Sevens, um, which seven sevens plus one Sabbath day equals 50. There we get Pentecost. And though it has a Greek name to us today, it was for God's people a, like a harvest celebration. Um, the festival of the sevens was the time they would present the first fruits of their wheat harvest and thanksgiving and worship and they'd present, offer other sacrifices as well and take a special Sabbath day. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, as part of their kind of pilgrimage festival rhythm, meaning that able-bodied male Jews were expected to go when they could to Jerusalem to observe this feast as well as uh, Passover. And I believe would bring their families when possible. But for us, Pentecost has become the celebration of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit coming in to people who follow Jesus and call him Lord. We have a whole branch of Christianity, a denomination maybe, uh, identified by its focus on this very thing and appreciation for the Holy Spirit's indwelling. It's called Pentecostalism. And so today, if all we do is just acknowledge and maybe 
celebrate in some way the arrival of the Holy Spirit, then that's a win for me. I want to read and tell this story. I want us to kind of enter into it um, and then maybe uh, kind of establish some questions we may ask moving forward why this conversation is important. Back to the year 30. (laughs) We ended with this Egyptian Jew with all these other people hearing a disciple of a crucified Messiah praising God in their native language, people all hearing the praise of God in their own languages from all different nations, hearing these Galilean men who have no business knowing these other languages praising God. And then one of the dudes stands up, starts talking about Jesus, crucified, risen. He's quoting one of the prophets about God's spirit being poured out on all people. That's where we paused. But now we press rewind. We're going back 50 days to the night of Passover. Our Egyptian Jew has just arrived at their cousin's house nearby. And then nearby them, this Messiah, Jesus, is in some upstairs room with his inner circle of 12 disciples. And he says these words to them. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He said those things and a number of other things in between them before and after those words. Um, He leaves this building, goes into a garden and prays and is uh, arrested shortly after. His disciples scatter and flee in fear for their lives of being associated with this Messiah and they watch from a distance as their teacher is crucified. They are defeated and confused and broken. But on Sunday morning, they hear a report from some of the women that followed Jesus with them. They said the tomb is empty, that he's alive and he wants to see you. And then they see Jesus. He's alive. He made good on his promise to rise from the dead. He gets to spend about 40 more days with his disciples and many other people see him alive. And then he told his disciples all that had happened to them and to him was in total accordance with God's plan. The scriptures had always pointed to this, Jesus told them. And they're eating dinner one night uh, and Jesus says this to them. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So his instruction is to wait right where they are in Jerusalem for this helper, this advocate that Jesus had just talked about a few days or a few um, a month ago or so. He tells them that they're going to be baptized, cleansed, washed, made new by this Holy Spirit. And they think that this means it's time to take back the kingdom. Immediately after he says that, they're like, sweet, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you going to take out Rome and establish yourself as, as king? And Jesus says, not yet. Uh, I don't need you to be my soldiers now. You're going to be my witnesses right now. And he says that you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit to tell the truth about Jesus, to share what has happened. He tells them they're going to tell people in, right there in Jerusalem, a little farther out in Judea, farther out to their enemies in Samaria, and even to the ends of the world as they knew it. And then just like that, Jesus was gone again, disappeared into the clouds. There's two angels there that tell the disciples, hey, why are you looking up there? He's going to come back just the way that he left. But then the disciples are just there, standing there, having just received their master back for a while, and then he's gone again. And thus begins the experience for those disciples and us today of Jesus' followers everywhere not having the physical presence of Jesus to guide and direct them. So just imagine you've spent several years with this Messiah, traveled with him, learned from him, saw and did unbelievable miracles. He's killed and you, all that you've hoped for for the last few years is lost in your mind. But then he's alive again, and you're like, oh my gosh, he did it. And he's telling you that you're gonna be his witnesses to the world. He's gonna send you out and empower you to go do this stuff, and you're like, sweet. But then he's gone again, disappeared into the sky. And so what they have left to do is to cling to his last and like, clearest command to wait to wait in Jerusalem until, as Luke says at the end of his gospel, they are clothed with power from on high. And so another week or so goes by. They're all gathered together in the same room, and our story meets back up with our Egyptian Jew from the beginning. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or other languages as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, <clears throat> 
What does this mean? What does this mean? It means that the helper has been sent. It means Jesus made good on his promise that he did not leave his disciples as orphans. He sent his Holy, Spirit to, his Holy Spirit to enter into his disciples. They began to speak the praise of God in other languages. I think in this context, precisely because there were so many nations present in this moment, the Spirit was preparing them for a mass evangelism moment. So all these people from all these countries hearing their language, wondering what's happening, they're gathered around. Peter tells them the story of Jesus, invites them to repent and believe in Jesus, and 3,000 people didn't pray a sinner's prayer and accept Jesus into their hearts. 3,000 people were baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love the question that these people asked upon hearing the evidence of the Spirit right in front of them in verse 12. What does this mean? What does this mean? When I think about it, uh, we've been asking that question as the church about the Spirit and what the Spirit of God does in us and through us. What does it mean ever since? <laughs> I mean this in the most hopeful and positive way, but we can't quite figure it out, can we? <laughs> What does all this mean? The work of the Spirit through the apostles, through the disciples, through the early church, the signs and the wonders and the miracles, the evidence of the Spirit just in the life of the church early on, the speaking in tongues, words of prophecy, knowledge and healing. We see and read about all these things in the scriptures and happening around us today, perhaps. And I don't know about you, but I find myself asking the same question as this crowd that has gathered around. What does this mean? What does it mean for us that the Holy Spirit has come into us? What does the Spirit want to do through you and through me? How do we make sense of the wild differences in understanding of the work of the Spirit in the church today? From churches whose trinity is like God, Jesus, and the Holy Bible, to healthy, spirit-filled churches that are cessationists, that believe that certain gifts are, had a time and a place for the church and no longer have a place for the church, to healthy churches that desire and exercise and work in gifts like tongues and prophecy and baptism of the Holy Spirit, to some of the kind of radical, crazy churches that have snakes and charmers and pastors like using the force to slay people in the spirit. There's a large spectrum of answers we have but everyone's striving to answer that question. What does this mean? <laughs> Who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do in and through an individual Jesus follower? And what does he do in and through the church? And so those are the questions I kind of want to talk about over the next three weeks. Um, who is he? What does he do in me? What's he supposed to do in me? And what does he do in the church? And I realize that those are pretty big questions and I don't anticipate that we're gonna like settle it once and for all. We might end up with more questions than answers. Um, but I, uh, I have a premise going into it. I've, I'll just admit my bias. Um, I believe that the Holy Spirit is God and therefore I believe that the Holy Spirit is good. And therefore I believe that we do not have to be afraid of him and we don't have to be afraid of whatever he may want to do in us or through us. Say it one more time. I believe that the Holy Spirit is God himself. 
and that the Holy Spirit, therefore, is good, and therefore that we do not have to be afraid to explore and pour over the scriptures and learn from uh, those that have gone before us, and we don't have to be afraid of what the Spirit of God might want to do in us and through us individually or as as a church. So we are essentially gonna be doing some theology over the next few weeks. I hope that doesn't make you like wanna check out and like not show up. But um, it'll essentially be a mix of like systematic and biblical theology. Systematic meaning we like gather all that the Bible says about one topic, the Holy Spirit, and we categorize it, synthesize it so that we can like present something as truthful and factual. Uh, But it also, to be healthy, needs biblical theology, meaning not that it's only that it's based in the Bible, but that we trace an understanding of, in this case, the Holy Spirit from the beginning of the Bible through its journey of how that doctrine is like unveiled to the end. So we ask questions like, what does Genesis reveal about the Holy Spirit? And we kind of limit ourselves, like if that's all we had, what would we know about the Spirit of God? Or if we had Abraham's words, what does Abraham think about the Spirit of God? Or if we had Moses, if that's all we had was Moses, what would we be able to learn about the Holy Spirit through Moses? Or if we had David and the Psalms, what would we learn about the Spirit? If we just had the teachings of Jesus, what, would we, what could we gather about the Holy Spirit? And so to do it right, I think we need both. We need to try to gather and categorize and synthesize and put it into bullet points that we can kind of, our brains can process in that way, but also let ourselves be kind of taken along for a ride because sometimes the categories get in the way of us learning uh, freshly and helpfully. So on that note of, of doing uh, theology, um, pneumatology, if you'd like the seminary word, study of the spirit, I have two thoughts. Don't let weird people make you afraid of the Holy Spirit and don't let afraid people make you weird about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> what I mean is don't let the ways that people get it wrong make you get it wrong uh, on the other end. If you have seen or have experience with someone who has expressed their relationship with the Spirit of God, exercising spiritual gifts in ways that you thought were wrong, unbiblical, uncomfortable, that doesn't mean that we get to like write it all off and be like, oh, I'm not gonna do that. And on the other side, if, if you've experienced like in your past lifeless, seemingly spiritless walk with Jesus or you've, or you've seen a fear or rigidity in a group of Christians that bothers you, it's not an excuse to just proceed in your worship and expression of the spiritual gifts um, and the order of the gathered church without paying mind to the scriptures and how they instruct the church in this matter. As you know, uh, the number of times I've heard this sentence, I feel like it's lost its meaning, uh, but I'm gonna say it anyways. We live in a polarized world. I just can't say it without laughing because I feel like everyone's saying that. We are so polarized, we're afraid of being associated with ultra left, ultra right, and so we're even afraid to have conversations where we try to nuance. Afraid of dialogue appearing like defection into the wrong side. But that is exactly what we need to do. Search for nuance, not be pledged to any side, but the desire to be faithful to the scripture so that we can be faithful to God. Faithfulness to scripture is not the end in and of itself, it's so that we can be faithful in our relationship with God, that we can have good, proper, and fulfilling relationship with him through the Holy Spirit. So that's the first thing. Don't let the crazies mess with it. We can, we can read the Bible together and be adults about it. Second thing, we will get lots of things wrong. I'm, it's painful 
Whatever I'm in, I don't know what I'm going to say in the next three weeks. I'm probably going to say some things that are wrong. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I don't know which things, but uh, when we attempt to do theology and build our lives around what we learn, we inevitably get things wrong. Like, you can probably think about things you thought seven, ten years ago, where you're like, I can't believe I thought that. I see now, like, uh, that was wrong. Um, we are currently, as a church, getting lots of things wrong. I may not, at this point, be able to pinpoint what they are. I may even think they're right. But uh, I might be wrong. The likelihood that God someday to me says, hey, bud, thanks for giving it your best shot. <laughs> I'm proud of you, but wow, you like really missed it. Um, anybody like the movie Dumb and Dumber? I don't know uh, if doing a Dumb and Dumber reference in a Baptist church is going to like make me <laughs> fall. But you know when they're trying to remember Mary's last name and he's like swimmy, swimmy, slippy, slappy. Uh, he's like, check the briefcase. Ah, Samsonite. I was way off. I knew it started with an S, though. That's what we have. We know it starts with an S. We have the first letter when it comes to how does the Spirit of God work in us, and we're just like scrolling through the options, hoping that we can stumble on what is true and good. Not only are we getting things wrong now, we are going to get things wrong in the future. We see things, as Scripture says in Corinthians, we see things like it's a foggy mirror in a dimly lit room. We know in part. But that's not to discourage us. Um, that's to encourage us with how good and gracious God is. That he receives and accepts our broken worship based on our broken and incomplete theology. He is that good. If my kid tries to tell me or my, or my wife uh, how much he loves us, which happens on occasion that they love us, uh, but he like messes up his words, ends up saying a word that sounds like a cuss word on accident, uses bad grammar, or gets mad in the middle of it because Chris and I start laughing about it. I still understand exactly what's happening. My kid's affection is stirred up. He wants to tell his mom and dad that he's grateful that he loves us. That's a beautiful moment. And we are God's children, are we not? Trying to offer him good and right worship in our church, like gathered church gatherings, and also just in our own lives. We wanna live lives full of the spirit, not just so we can say that we're doctrinally correct, but because we want a relationship with our creator, with our father, our savior, and this helper that we have. We want life to the full, like he promised, and we want to experience the fullness of joy in God's presence like we read. And so the goals are good. Can we acknowledge that? When we go to set out to do this, the goals are good, and I feel like we need to acknowledge that God is happy when we do this. Happy when we seek to understand him because we're seeking to move towards him um, in relationship with him. So that's what I'd like to do, is to, over the next few weeks, move towards God through the scriptures, hoping to arrive at maybe a fresh understanding of um, who this mystery member of the Trinity is, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Oh God, I just ask that you would um, receive and be pleased with our humble efforts to understand you and that you might give us the grace of revealing yourself to us a bit more. That you would, 
as you promised to do through the Holy Spirit, illuminate the scriptures. We may see dimly, but you can shine bright light on your word to help us understand and therefore to help us know you, live for you, and follow you. So I just ask for uh, bravery and courage and maybe some humility and flexibility for all of us as we talk about issues that maybe are uh, divisive or maybe things we feel curious about or maybe a little bit on edge about. Would you give us healthy curiosity and humility and help us most of all to trust you as we do this? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.